If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We give Bibles away on your right there at the table. If, you, uh, if you'd like a Bible or need one, we give them away. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I'll tell you guys, if uh, this is one of those days that if it were entirely up to my own preference, I might not preach what we're going to preach on. It's why we do what's called expository preaching, where we take a book, or in this case, several chapters together, and we preach through all of it, and we don't skip any of it. Um, it might be my preference to skip this. You'll see what I mean when we read it. But we don't skip it because we believe that, that a church is not built on just the feel-good scriptures. That a church is built on what we call the whole counsel of God. All of the Word of God is inspired by Him, and Paul says it is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, reproof, and for training in righteousness. So we preach all of it, and uh, even the difficult ones like this. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 today. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking to His disciples, It was said, or you have heard, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. Who's the person you think about the most? I'd love to stand up here and be very noble and say, it's my wife, it's my children. But I know the truth about me. The person I think about the most by far is me. And really, I know that's true for all of us, that, that we think about ourselves so much, so often, so deeply, that we, we don't even realize when we're doing it. It's the most natural thing to us. We are, by nature, very self-absorbed and self-directed. And I'm not sure that we can necessarily help that. I think it is just naturally who we are, but there is, there is a threshold that we can cross where it really goes too far. And I think we all know this because we've all been there, and sometimes we find ourselves there on a day-to-day basis. I can tell you the truth about me, that there is for me a daily temptation to think of the entire world as revolving around me, that I'm the star and everybody else is the supporting cast. That's my temptation. I'm tempted every day, just like you are, to make decisions based exclusively on my own happiness, regardless of how they might affect anybody else. If it makes me happy, then it's of ultimate concern. Uh, I'm tempted to lie in order to make myself look good or to get my way. I'm tempted to look down on other people if I don't think they measure up to me, if they don't uphold the standards that I think people should uphold, and I can be very ungracious to other people in that way. Now, those things are not true because I hate the world. Those things are true because I love myself too much. Jesus assumed that we would love ourselves, and, and self-love, self-absorption, is maybe one of the most natural things about us, and it gets out of control. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the words of Jesus, when we come to the words of Jesus here in Matthew 5 today specifically, Pretty much every line that we read makes us squirm. It makes us uncomfortable. It does for me. Because almost every word Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount is designed to pull the self-absorption out of us. To pull that natural love for myself out of me. Last week we looked at the issue of lust. Before that we looked at the issue of anger. Before that Jesus said that our lives are meant, that our lives exist 
in order to point other people to God, not to point them to ourselves as if things revolve around me, but my life exists to, to point others to him, that they would see me and glorify God because of me. And so the more self-centered I am, the more Jesus' words are going to bring friction and pain. It's difficult to read through the Sermon on the Mount because it, it interferes with this love that I have for myself. And that's purposeful, of course. That's not by accident. Jesus Christ spoke words on purpose to pin us, paint us, as it were, into a corner. We've talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, that part of the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount being so difficult is that Jesus is showing us that we have nowhere to go in terms of finding righteousness and finding God's favor. It has to be received. Jesus came to give it to us. We can't earn it through our own efforts, okay? And so this is, this is Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, not affirming my heart, which is part of what I wish he would do. Jesus came to change my heart. He did not come to affirm us just the way we are. You just do you. No, Jesus came to change us because we desperately need it. We need to conform to God's righteousness, okay? And so last week, Jesus addressed the issue of adultery and lust, which has a direct effect on marriage. And so we talked, we touched a little bit last week on marriage. This week, Jesus addresses marriage again, but from a different perspective or, or with a different issue. He, he deals with the issue of divorce, okay? Now, before we get into the text in Matthew 5, we've already read it, but before we study it, um, I want to show us God's heart concerning marriage, and bigger than that, God's heart just concerning you. What God's heart for us looks like. One of the most vivid and striking uh, pictures of this comes from a little book in the Old Testament called Hosea. Hosea is a minor prophet. Minor because the book is shorter. The major prophets, those guys like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, wrote long books. Several of the prophets wrote short ones. They're called minor prophets. Hosea was one of these. And Hosea, if you, if you didn't know what you were looking for, you'd probably skip right by it because it's only a couple of pages long. But Hosea was a prophet. Uh, prophets, generally, in the Old Testament, were sent out by God to preach a message to beckon the people of God back because they were rebellious. Things had gotten out of control in Israel. They were worshiping false idols. They were living in sin. They were neglecting and rejecting God's righteous commands. And so prophets were sent out to try to bring the people back by preaching righteousness. Hosea was one such prophet. But God does something interesting with Hosea. He doesn't just send him out to preach. He tells him to do something that really was unthinkable. And I'm going to show it to you. We'll put it on the screen. Hosea chapter 1. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go Take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, how about that name? Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. You see what's happening here? God commands Hosea, the prophet, to go and marry a prostitute, to love her, to have children with her, to start a family together. Hosea is a pure man. He's a godly man. He's a prophet. This is something he would never do on his own initiative. He would have never done this, but God decrees it. And God says, this is going to be a picture to Israel, to God's people, of his relationship to them, of his relationship to us, of the pure husband who is wed 
to the wandering harlot. Then what happens, as we might expect, Hosea loves Gomer. He treats her with great esteem. He does not treat her as a harlot. He treats her as his wife, and he loves her. And yet she does what we might assume she would do. She wanders back. She returns in rebellion from her husband and her family, leaves her children, and becomes a prostitute all over again. So much so that she actually ends up sold into slavery as a prostitute and put up on the auction block. So what does God tell Hosea? You've done your part, Hosea. You were faithful and good. She left. Wipe your hands clean and move on. Is that what God says? No, look at chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Hosea speaking, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Raisin, quick history lesson. Raisin cakes were considered aphrodisiacs in ancient Israel. So they, the people would eat raisin cakes and then do all sorts of unmentionable things, okay? Um, <clears throat> So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Try to even imagine this. Hosea, betrayed, embarrassed, mortified by what's happened to him and his family. Surely everyone around town knows what's happened. And yet, he turns his heart back to his wife, back to his adulterous wife, and he buys her off the auction block. He redeems her in spite of her, in spite of what she'd done. He brings her home and he loves her all over again. And in all of this, we see, I hope, a very clear picture. God makes it clear that God is revealing his own heart toward his people. Now, I don't like to, I don't like to think of myself this way. I don't like to think of myself as a gomer, of somebody who, who uh, is unworthy and is somebody who's not good. I think of myself as a good person. I don't know about you. I, I pay my taxes. I keep the law for the most part. Like I, you know, except for speeding occasionally or whatever. You know, I, I, I'm a good person. Most of us are. And anybody who says otherwise, those are fighting words, right? I'm good. And yet the truth is, the truth according to God's standard in the Scripture is that this is me, that I'm not faithful Hosea in this image here he's giving to us. I'm the wandering harlot. And if I were honest with you about all the sins, not just externally, but the sins of my own heart, there are countless examples of times where I have walked away from God's love and care and provision and grace, and I have done my own thing. I've loved other things equal to or even more than I've loved God. I'm an idolater. I'm a harlot. That's what the Scripture says about me. Now, I have... I have chosen this way of life, and yet what happens in response, what God does to me, to us in response, when we act this scenario out, is what God says, Hosea, you need to do, you need to go and purchase her. She's abandoned you. She doesn't deserve to come back. She's not worth the, the 15 shekels, perhaps, according to your contemporaries and your kinsmen. They would say, let her go. She gets what she deserves, but not Hosea and not God. That God, his heart to us, what makes it so unbelievable is that, is that although we have sold ourselves into slavery to sin, that's the language that the Apostle Paul uses, that's New Testament language. You and I have sold ourselves into slavery to sin, yet God did not forsake us. He did not treat us as our sins have deserved. 
He has redeemed us at his own cost. God came and pursued us in our lostness, in our darkness, in our sin, and he bought us back, not with money, as in Hosea's case, but with the precious blood of his own son. That's what 1 Peter chapter 1 says, that we were purchased, we were redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he was, he was acting as a faithful husband to an unfaithful spouse, a people who did not deserve his grace. He was purchasing us for himself that he might make us his own. God, listen, God has covenanted to love you no matter what. No matter what. The covenant says God's going to keep his end of the bargain. He's going to keep his end of the promise even when we fail him. He is forever faithful even when I'm not. Now, when we start to grasp this kind of love, the love that's pictured as a husband, pure and faithful, even to an unfaithful spouse, when we start to picture God this way, it helps us, I think, to understand God's perspective, Jesus' perspective on divorce. Okay? So look with me at Matthew chapter 5 again. Just two verses, chapter, chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus, it was said, Jesus says, or you have heard, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. <clears throat> what Jesus is referencing, the you have heard, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, write a certificate of divorce. He's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24. In Deuteronomy 24, this was a scripture about any husband in Israel who identified a sexual impurity in his wife, something he didn't otherwise know about. There's an impurity and immorality that he discovers in his wife, and he is then permitted, in this case, Deuteronomy 24, he can write her a certificate of divorce and send her away with cause. That's the idea. But it was actually, in the time, it was actually a protective mechanism, not just for the purity of the husband, but for the sake of the wife. That this was a culture in which women had no rights. That the man was the breadwinner, the man was the, uh, the landowner. The woman typically, unless she was under her father's care and protection, the woman typically had no means of income or way of survival. And so in writing a certificate of divorce, he was giving her authentic documentation which would allow her then, without shame, to go and get remarried. It was a protective mechanism. It was a good thing in, in a bad situation. She's free now to remarry. But the people of Jesus' day had reformed that scripture as a way of making all divorce permissible for any reason at all. It was never God's desire for that, for, for God's children, the people of Israel, to get divorced. That was not God's plan. But over time, the emphasis was placed on the certificate. As long as my wife displeases me in any way, I can just write the note, make it official, and send her off. And it got to the point, it actually became, in, in, a, in, a, kind of a, a, in a dark humor kind of way, it became a joke among the rabbis that if your wife burned dinner, you could sign her off and send her out the door. Right? It was that flippant for them. And so part of the context here, listen, men in the time of Jesus, they had, they had all the power. There was a power structure that was, that was entirely off kilter. 
that men had the power in the relationship, and the thought became this. Well, as long as my, life, as my wife pleases me, as long as she conforms to me, as long as she bends to my will and my desires, then I'll keep her. But if not, I'll send her away, and I'll go find another one. I'll go find somebody who will fulfill me in that way. So we shouldn't, listen, it should not surprise us at all that Jesus squashes this idea that he condemns this as wrong. That is wrong. But it's the way he does it that makes us squirm. It's not just that he says, don't do that, that's not right. He says, listen, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of immorality, makes her commit adultery. In other words, anyone who divorces his wife or spouse without cause, and Jesus says the cause is adultery on the spouse's part, if, if you divorce your spouse without cause, you're making your spouse commit adultery. In the case that they do get remarried, they are breaking the covenant oneness of the initial marriage. And Jesus is not placing the blame on the, on the wife in this case. Remember, she has no power in this circumstance. He's placing the blame on the husband. You're making her become an adulteress because you have broken the covenant oneness of the original marriage. Um, Jesus is making right here an important statement, not so much about divorce as it is about marriage. That Jesus is talking about marriage as, uh, I used this word last week, it's a binding covenant. A covenant. Not just an arrangement uh, affirmed by the state or the government. It's a binding covenant that's not meant to be broken except by death. Death is the only acceptable means of breaking that covenant. And so um, I just I say this, I just say it very plainly because I think Jesus was plain. Um, divorce is not God's will. I think we see that here in this scripture. It's not God's will. So why does God make permission for it? Why Deuteronomy 24 in the first place? Why is it allowed? Well, there was a time um, later on, and if you're fast in your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 19, just a few chapters to your right in Matthew 19. There was a time later on when the Pharisees cornered Jesus, or they thought they were cornering him, uh, and they really pushed him on this point. They really wanted a, a further explanation on this, okay, based on what Jesus had preached before. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 3. It gives us a little fuller treatment. It's worth looking at now. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, trying to put him in a corner, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? They want a list of exceptions. Give us all the, permiss- the permissions here. Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, he said. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That's covenant language. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let no man separate. Well, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're quoting Deuteronomy 24. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. In other words, it was not God's will. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So when Jesus is given an opportunity to expand on his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, 
you see what his focus is. He doesn't use the word, but he uses the idea very plainly. It's the, it's the teaching here of covenant, that a husband and wife are joined together by God, Jesus says. Again, it's not something that merely the state affirms. It's not something that gives you tax benefits, and that's, that's the end of the story. It's something that God has ordained and God brings together, and this couple now becomes one, no longer two. You, you maintain your individual personality, identity, dignity, all of that stuff, yes, but you're not who you were. You're one with someone else. And the reason God per- made permission for that oneness to be broken, uh, Jesus says, is because of sin. It's because of your hardness of heart. And so, yes, there, there are permissions given to us in the Scripture. Right, let me go through them really quick, or at least the ones that I know of. Jesus just gave us one, the big one, immorality. If there is sexual immorality, if there's cheating, uh, then divorce is permissible. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, if a Christian spouse has a non-Christian spouse, an unbelieving spouse, and the unbelieving spouse wants to cut out, wants to leave, then Paul says the Christian spouse is not held liable. You're not at fault. You're free. Uh, You've been abandoned is maybe the term that we might use. Um, now, I say this, there's not a, an explicit scripture that says this in, in any direct way, but I say it with confidence, and I could make a case if you, if you like to corner me sometime, um, that in, in a case of spousal abuse, that's a covenant-breaking activity where there is abuse. I would never counsel a, a wife to bear up under abuse in the home and just deal with it, okay? That, that husband is breaking covenant with his wife when he abuses her. Um, But listen, the the main point Jesus is making is not the permissions. It's not the exceptions. The point that he's making is that God delights in covenant marriage, and that covenant should be precious to us. It's not something that God created on a whim or created merely to help the social fabric. It's something that God created to give us a picture of himself that we see in a very vivid way in the story of Hosea, but we see in an even greater way in the story of Christ. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. Here's the problem, okay? And I say this even as a married man. Here's the problem. The problem is not with divorce as a bare fact, okay? Divorce is an outcome. It's a product of other things. And again, other things that may have a legitimacy to them. There's a a permissible uh, reason to break that covenant, Okay, we have some in the scripture. But what is it that roots, uh, what is it rooted within us that makes divorce, at least culturally, that makes divorce so common and seemingly so easy and, and for some people even advantageous? And I come back to this, what I believe, because I know it's in my own heart, is the conviction that my happiness is of the utmost importance, that the world is or ought to revolve around me. And see, when I bring that perspective into marriage, I don't think about marriage as a covenant. I don't come to it in the way that God talks about it in the scripture, what he made it to be. I tend to think, naturally, I tend to think about marriage as a happiness mechanism. Now hear me on this, because if you're, if you're married or if you one day aspire to be married, you're, this is going to hit you square in the heart. I tend to think about marriage so often as a happiness mechanism that Jennifer and I got married and she exists within this marriage to make me happy, to fulfill me, to meet my needs. 
And, and I'll try to do the same for her, and the best we're going to do, hopefully on a really good day, is we're going to meet 50-50 on that in the middle. We're going to give and take so that we can try to make each other happy. That's why we got married. At least that's from the natural perspective. I think we all come to marriage that way, convinced that that's going to be the case, that this person is going to complete me and fulfill me, and that's what marriage is for. Do we see that that's wrong on, on, on the grounds of what God has established marriage to be? That God has spoken of covenant, covenant which is self-giving, first and foremost. We talked about this last week when we take vows. We don't say, I promise to love and honor and serve you as long as you love, honor, and serve me back. Right? That would sound very silly coming from the altar, wouldn't it? And yet, that's how a lot of us approach marriage. That's what our hearts are bent toward. I'll do this for you if you do it back to me. But covenant says, I'll love, serve, and honor you, period. Or even exclamation point, because it's not always easy. It's not always natural. Your spouse doesn't always deserve it. And so you're stepping across a line of promise. I'm going to give myself to you. First and foremost, I'm not going to take from you. I'm not marrying you for what you can do for me. I'm going to give my life for you. I don't, I, I, so often, I don't wake up thinking about marriage that way. God's got to change my heart. And y'all, just more broadly, you know, the, the idea of marriage, if you haven't noticed, it's, it's falling out of fashion in the larger culture because we've come to believe that we can have all the benefits of relationship without the binding commitment, without the promise, without the covenant. We can live together, we can share a bank account, we can buy a dog together, we can have kids together, we can do everything together without signing our lives away. And that, of course, you know, if, if you're just thinking logically and naturally, maybe that makes perfect sense. But the reason God gives us a binding covenant to reflect marriage is not so that we won't cut and run when things get difficult. He gives us a binding covenant because it reflects Him. It reflects His heart. And if I'm not willing to make the promise then the relationship is just a constant audition. Do you fit? Do you make me happy? Because if you don't, I can always find somebody else. God doesn't allow for that because it doesn't reflect Him. And so God created marriage to love marriage, to institute marriage, not just as something that benefits us and benefits society, which it does, but it's meant to be a picture of heaven. It's meant to be a picture of how much Jesus has loved us that's why he's so adamant about divorce. It's not just a law. Don't do it. Jesus is trying to express a heart behind it. Um, now, here, let me, I, I, here's where I really want to be sensitive, because I know this. I know how prevalent divorce is in our culture, and I know that we have people in this room right now that this is part of your story, that you've walked through this. Um, the sensitivity that I, I pray that we communicate is that, that divorce is not somehow some separate, isolated sin that's worse than the others. And there are, sadly, there are some churches, there are some Christians that, that, are, that are adamant about this, that it's this unpardonable sin separated out from the rest. And I want you to know it's not. That, that divorce does not alienate you from God's grace, that divorce does not alienate you from God's church. It doesn't alienate you from Harvest Church. You're not somehow excluded or different or less than because that's part of your life story. Y'all, we live in a broken world, and we are all broken. Let's be very clear on this. Whatever the particulars of our brokenness may be, we are all the same. We come from the very same place of darkness 
and spiritual death in need of resurrecting life and grace. We are all Gomer. All right? Tweet that one. Okay? We're all Gomer. We are. All of us. And therefore, there's nothing in your life story, and I say this with sincerity, there's nothing in your life story that disqualifies you or puts you in a different camp or somehow sticks you in the corner because of what you've done or what you've experienced or what's been done to you. We all come to God on the same basis of His grace. And so listen, for those of us who have walked through this, walked through divorce, whatever the circumstances, I want you to know and believe that God's heart for you is redemptive. That our heart is Harvest Church. It's redemptive. That in Jesus Christ we find healing, we find hope, and we find holiness. Healing and hope and holiness. And I, you know, I, part of the, the, the difficult thing about a scripture like this is that Jesus, all at once here, Jesus is giving us a standard of righteousness. He's not backing away from it. He's giving us a rule of life. Okay? And we can't, we can't soften that. That divorce, in God's eyes, is, is uh, unacceptable. That it's permissible only because of sin. It's not his will. It's not the way it's designed to be. And yet, that righteousness, that holiness that Jesus calls us to, is not without mercy that undergirds it. Because Jesus knew to whom he was speaking in everything he tells us in Matthew 5. That for us a few weeks ago it was anger, last week it was lust. Everything that Jesus tells us to do, he knows is, is basically impossible for the sinful heart of a human being to keep. And so there's always mercy to be found when we fail the standard. And so we have to, we have to carry this balance, which is very difficult to do. That there's a righteous requirement of Christ here. He doesn't back down, and we shouldn't either. But there's mercy. There's mercy for failures like us, for failures like me, who fall short of it, okay? And so there's hope and healing, and there's holiness. Jesus can bring holiness in this area, and he's got to. If the church is going to make any impact on the world, he's got to. You know why Jesus is telling us these things? Um, Earlier in chapter 5, he says, your righteousness must surpass the religious leaders of his day. Your righteousness must exceed theirs. And then he starts telling us how. Concerning anger, concerning lust, concerning marriage. There is a needed uh, antidote to the darkness in our world. And Jesus is saying, it is you, it's the church. And therefore, in, in today's example, live in marriage in such a way that we communicate light and grace and love and purity to a world that has long since left those things in the dust. There's hope for that in Christ. Now, let me say this also. If, you, if you're in this room right now and cycling through your mind is the thought of divorce, that it's something you maybe even have spoken about or you're just harboring that thought, that feeling in your heart for whatever reason, whether those reasons are legitimate according to the Scripture or whether they're simply a lack of happiness and contentment, please, please submit yourself to godly counsel here. Do not make a decision like that in a vacuum. Do not make that decision based on the, 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 the ease of the, the culture and the, the laxity of the law that would allow for it. That is not our standard as Christians. Submit yourself, please, to somebody who can speak the words of Christ to you and who can help you think through it from the biblical perspective. Okay? Um, I would love to help in that in any way that I can, but don't make that decision separate from the words of Christ and from the love and the covering of his church. Because we, we are meant to have 
a, a community that is such that no matter what anybody goes through, we're able to step in and help bear that weight. And so often we don't come to the church in matters like this. We think of it as an exclusive and private issue of the home. Please don't view it that narrowly. That's a vacuum mentality. Talk to me. Talk to somebody you know who is godly and wise, who can give you genuine biblical counsel on this, because we need it. We need it. Y'all, I know this is a thorny issue, okay? I said it at the beginning. I, I left up to myself. I don't, I, I don't really want to touch this issue, because I know it's painful. I know divorce can be shameful. Um, I know there are a lot of people, even people within the church, who don't see anything wrong with it at all. Um, but we preach it, I pray, faithfully. We preach it with mercy and hope, because that's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus did. And so, if there, listen, if you are insulted or hurt by anything that we've said today, or if you're concerned, confused, and you need, you need encouragement, hope, whatever, whatever it may be on all ends of the spectrum, come find me, come talk to me, text me, email me. Um, let's, let's walk through these issues together. This is major stuff. It was important enough for Jesus to mention it, and not just to mention it, but to dig deep into the heart of God for it. Okay? And it, we ought to hold it as high as he did. Okay? We don't treat marriage flippantly. We don't take divorce lightly, because we are the people of God, called to his purity and holiness. Let me say again, we see in, in the story of Hosea, a faithful husband. Wouldn't you love to have been Hosea? God just says, go do it. Go love this woman. And then go love her again. Seems very unfair. But it's such a precious picture to us of the heart of God. God who has been treated unfairly. And that's, I mean, that is taking it lightly, to say the least, right? That we have time and time again wandered from God. Uh, we've rebelled against God. I have left him behind in favor of lesser things that I thought would make me happy. And God continually, in his, in his uh, husband love for his spouse... In his love for the church, God continually redeems and brings back and covers us with the blood of Christ. We don't deserve that. I don't deserve it once, let alone every day. And so I, th this is why Jesus Christ is pictured. If you read through Revelation, Jesus is pictured as a groom and the church is his bride adorned in white, pure. For men, that's one of the hardest images in the Bible to accept. I don't like to think of myself as a bride, okay? wearing a wedding dress. But think about this image. A wayward bride, a sinful bride, and yet on the wedding day, when the joining together in covenant love is to take place once and for all forevermore, we, the church, the bride, are wearing white. Pure. Not because we earned it, but because the groom has made it so. He makes us pure. And he delights to unite himself to us in covenant love forever. That is a gift that we receive by faith. It is free. And my hope is that for us, as we treasure that gift of Christ, that it would give us a renewed treasuring, a renewed perspective on what married is. Whether you are married or divorced or single, let's hold this great privilege, this great gift in high esteem Wherever we are in life, let's see it as God sees it and pray that God would make much of himself through our relationships. Father, we ask that, that this morning, as, as we encounter, a, uh, I know it's a difficult text, it stings, 
Um, even for me as a married man, just the, just the thought of, of, um, of divorce is, it's, it's just, it's heavy. It's so heavy. And if we've not been through it personally, Lord, we surely know people in our family and close friends that have. So Lord, this, this, this touches us in a, in a way that, that is, is very personal. And Father, I suspect that it touches us in a way that, that, that gets us t- at, at, at deep in our hearts, Lord, that, that um, it's hard. It's a hard reality. So Father, in, in one sense, I pray on one hand that you would, that you would uphold your, your righteous desire and design and expectation for us, that we would hold marriage in the highest esteem and that we, Lord, would not just see it as an institution in that way, but that we would see it as a vibrant living covenant, that we day by day, we're not looking to fulfill our, our wants and desires and be happy in marriage. That's not the primary goal. But that we would see marriage as covenant love and that we would find a deeper joy than we could ever imagine in it. But Father God, I pray that, that for those of us who divorce touches us in our family or even personally, also, Lord, uphold your mercy that there is for us, that we have received fullness, grace upon grace because of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, there is nothing you've held back from us. That there is nothing, Lord, about your grace that finds exclu- exclusions, exceptions. That you would only love us up to a certain point based on something we've done that disqualifies us. Lord, no. No. Thank you for the grace that changes our perspective, that we can know you, love you, live for you right where we are, regardless of what our past has been. And that, Lord, you give us hope for tomorrow, hope to live, Lord, in your holiness, because you have washed away our sin. Father God, we need this so desperately. Our culture needs it. We as the church, Lord, we need to model even imperfectly, Father, help us to model what it looks like to live as lights concerning marriage and family so that our very broken world would see that there is hope and that there's joy when it's done according to Jesus Christ. We pray this, Lord, because we need your grace. We don't need help. We need grace. We need transformation. So we ask it in Jesus' name.